The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, everybody. So you might notice that uh, Mark, our uh, guiding teacher, Mark Nunberg, is out of town. He is leading a retreat right now, um, which always opens opportunities for us to hear from other teachers in this community. And it's um, always nice to hear other voices, other um, experiences from other teachers. Um, Mary Jo Meadows is with us tonight. Um, Mary Jo, her background started back in 1987. She uh, founded Resources for Ecumenical Spirituality, which promotes interfaith understanding. This led to 26 years of leading Buddhist Christian retreats. And if that alone sounds interesting, or if her talk sounds interesting tonight, she has written seven books. So you have a little, uh, little bit of reading to do. She is Professor Emerita for Psychology and Re- Religious Studies at, it was Mankato State University, is that right? At Mankato. At Mankato. And she has eight children on the side. She has eight children and... Um, grandchildren, which led to five great-grandchildren, um, but it sounds like she lives uh, fairly peacefully right now with four cats. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Mary Jo. Before I almost forgot. Before I start, um, those of you who have not heard me speak before, just a word of explanation. Of course, my talks are grounded in the teachings of the Buddha, but I also bring in Christian mystic John of the Cross, who many people have called a crypto-Buddhist because his teachings are so very Buddhist, and also psychology when it can be of help for us. So the talks are kind of a blend for those of you who haven't heard this before. In the Christian scriptures, the disciple Paul wrote, I do not understand my own behavior. I do not act as I mean to, but I do the things that I hate. Though the will to do what is good is in me, the power to do it is not. The good that I want to do, I never do. The evil thing which I do not want, that is what I do. And from a Christian Lutheran confession, We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. This sentiment might resonate with many of us, whether our flaws are large or small. How much control do we really have over our thought and behavior? Are the long-standing notions of willpower and free will really true? Do we freely choose our thoughts and actions? The intriguing answer to this question is both yes and no. This talk is about the limits on and range of our freedom. It's called will, freedom, and powerlessness. Across history, many perspectives on free will have been examined and expressed. A multitude of issues have been raised and debated. Are we human beings so wedded to wrong choices, as the Lutheran confession has it, 
that we can't avoid them? Are we always doomed to this? Or do we have some freedom to choose the good and overcome the pull to unskillful behavior? The Buddha taught that we come strongly conditioned to be pulled into unwholesome states of mind that can then trigger unskillful behavior and wrong speech. Although we're so conditioned, he also taught that the situation is not hopeless. He said there's a way out of this morass, our meditation practice that gradually frees us from the torments of the mind and the bad behavior that often follows them. As greed and aversion are reduced, we become freer. The religions of the book, based on the story in Genesis of the fall of the human race, have debated will and freedom for millennia. Jewish thought pondered the paradox that scripture says we're created in the image of God and must have human dignity, yet we so often seem to have so little control over ourselves. Rabbis ultimately came to the conclusion that we are capable of governing ourselves. The 4th century Gregory of Nyssa concluded that we are governed and ruled autonomously by our own will. But then Augustine soon followed with a different opinion, probably because of his own struggles with seemingly uncontrollable sexual urges he saw us as irreparably damaged. This view came to dominate Christian thought, leading to the idea that only God could save us and that this happened with the life and death of Jesus. This view also gave the church a lot of authority over people and left them needing what the church could offer. With the Reformationist John Calvin came a strongly deterministic position. Calvin taught that we're all predestined to either salvation or perdition. That is, we have absolutely no control over our final outcomes. We know that we're among the saved if our behavior is good and our circumstances are fortunate, but it's already been determined. This position led people to try heartily to behave well and to prosper so that they could feel saved. Sociologists have linked such view with the rise of capitalism and the ethic of success in the world. Contemporary thought usually falls into three categories on the free will issue. Determinism, libertarianism, and compatibilism. Determinists hold free will to be elusive. They believe that like the physical world, all about us is determined. Libertarians see us acting freely, often saying that the soul rises above causation and is not bound by it. While this is a satisfying position, most people feel it's not quite that easy. Compatibilists accept physical determination but claim that we're free whenever we're not under the control of any inner or outer compulsion. Well, we know, of course, that we all have a lot of inner compulsions. 
our unfinished psychological business, or you could say our karma that we're dragging. Our practice fortunately works on freeing us from such unconscious motivators of our speech and behavior. In John of the Cross, the Buddha, and behavioral psychology, we have three somewhat compatible positions on this. They take into account our determined pills, pulls. John of the Cross defined three spiritual powers, intellect, memory, and will. He said that will draws us to different objects of desire, whatever the mind, intellect or memory consider good. He said that when the will is wrongly oriented, it can distort our reason and we see as good what is not ultimately our highest good. Thus, we make bad choices. John pointed out where he felt our responsibility for choosing begins. He wrote, quote, First movements, those stirrings in, our ration, in which our rational will has no Heart are spontaneous inclinations that arise in our minds before we make any voluntary response to them. Those stirrings that do not go beyond the first movements are just temptations to which we do not consent. Close quote. So John said we have no responsibility for them, but we're accountable if we accept their invitation. When we can see first movements and choose not to let them lead us into the emotions and impulses that produce unwanted speech and behavior, we're becoming free. And when these disturbing first movements arise, John said that they won't cause us unrest for long unless our lack of courage and caution allow them to continue. John emphasized the importance of small choices. Quote, if a small crack in a pitcher goes unrepaired, the damage will be enough to cause all the liquid to leak out. Close quote. And of course, the Buddhist tradition similarly teaches that nothing is free. Every choice we make bends our inclinations in one direction or another. John's notion of first movements is analogous to the Buddhist notion of feeling tone, which some people call sensation or feeling, Vedana in the Pali. This is the hedonic quality of our experiences, their pleasantness, our unpleasantness. And this is a given. We have no control over that. It's just there. However, if we don't recognize the feeling tone of our experiences, it can give rise to greed and aversion. And then our responsibility starts. Greed and aversion then give rise to intentions to act on them, and our responsibility is compounded. The Buddha realized that although choice occurs, it's not completely free because we're conditioned to react to pleasantness with greed and to unpleasantness with aversion. We can't attack this problem directly with so-called willpower, and the choice is not completely free. This is why we practice. 
With practice, we carve out increasing freedom, the ability to become unmoved by the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experiences. John of the Cross probably saw us as having more freedom in our response to first movements, our feeling tone, than the Buddha did. But they both hold that ultimately we do not need to be ruled by unhelpful reactions to our experiences. Radical behavioral psychology goes even further than the Buddha on our conditioned state. Using rats and pigeons, it has demonstrated that you can condition an animal to many different behaviors by simply controlling its outcomes with pleasantness or unpleasantness. Conditioning experiments were even carried out on children before ethics committees, which forbade them, came into being. However, the question gets much more complex than even this. And I'm going to review the thought of some other psychologists with their approaches to issues of will and freedom that give us some more insight. Psychologist William James saw the problem of willpower as one of attention. He said that whatever holds your attention determines your action. Holding a certain content in your mind ends willing and automatic processes then take over. Once you allow contrary thoughts to enter your mind, action is inhibited. And here's the example he gave. Consider getting out of bed in the morning. If you start thinking about how nice it would feel to catch a few more winks or how chilly the room will be or how comfortable the bed is, the likelihood of getting up on time decreases. If you keep your thoughts solely on getting up, you quickly do so. So he concluded, quote, Effort of attention is thus the essential phenomenon of will. Close quote. Most Eastern religions consider the control of mental content to be a central component of the spiritual life. James's understanding parallels that of John in the Buddha. If we let the pleasantness or unpleasantness of an experience captivate us, we're likely to be sucked into acting on the emotions and impulses they bring. And, of course, anyone who's tried to practice meditation knows how difficult focusing of attention is. Psychologist Gordon Allport pointed out that intense focus on what we want not to do usually does not bring good results. It's rather like telling someone not to think of a pink elephant the elephant immediately becomes a dominant mental content. However, he said that relax, relaxation of an effort of willpower and just focusing on higher order motives can have a steering order effect on lesser motives. Thus, thinking of long-range goals and aspirations sometimes absorbs desire for incompatible behavior. Again, this is acting on conscious mental contents. We've simply replaced the content we want to avoid 
with content about what we most deeply aspire to. Allport noted that the more we understand ourselves, the more we can recognize the limits to our freedom and weigh them against our inclinations. He did acknowledge that people with more available options are freer than those with limited possibilities. Skills, education, training, intelligence, and information all increase freedom. So the more fortunate among us are freer, not by anything that we've merited or earned, but just by many factors outside of our control. Rollo May, who most fully developed the idea of intentionality, says that our age is one of disordered will, ennui, and apathy. The despairing sense that nothing really matters negates commitment and the ability to will. May said that we become free through becoming aware of our deep motivational forces, not by denying them or trying to force control of them by willpower. He wrote, quote, Freedom is our capacity to know that we are determined to pause between stimulus and response and thus to throw weight, however slight it might be, on the side of one particular response among several possible ones. Close quote. We again are doing this by deciding what mental content will be dominant. And again, our meditation practice gives us increasing control over our mental content. May said that protest signifies half-developed will. Protesters know only what they're against, not what they're for. Since they do not act but only react to what they oppose, they are not free. They also usually project blame for their dissatisfaction onto others. An inadequate solution that places power and responsibility outside of themselves. We cannot have intentionality, May said, without values and purpose in life. And our capacity for commitment depends upon this intentionality. Meaning and values produce intentionality, which makes choice and commitment possible. Born with the potential for freedom, we must grow into it. This position might be a bit over-optimistic if we don't have additional help in finding meaning and values for our lives. And now to Eric Fromm, whom I suppose some of you have read because his work strongly reflects his own involvement with Buddhist studies. He called his viewpoint alternativism. He said we cannot speak of freedom in general, but only freedom for a particular person at a particular time in a particular circumstance. Similarly, we cannot choose good or evil in the abstract, we choose particular behaviors that prove to be means 
to either good or evil. The choice is always about one specific act. For example, we cannot choose whether or not to give up smoking. We can only choose whether or not to smoke this cigarette at this time. And we can make that same choice over and over again. This wisdom is reflected in the one-day-at-a-time philosophy of 12-step programs. In the same vein as the Buddha in John of the Cross, Fromm said our choices are often between action dictated by irrational passion and those based on reason. Freedom depends on the strength of those opposing forces and on awareness. He pointed out that maximum freedom actually would be the ability to choose either good or evil with equal ease. But this isn't the kind of freedom most of us want. Reasonable choices serve growth while passions enslave us into acting against our own good. Fromm wrote about the kind of freedom that we want, quote, Freedom is nothing other than the capacity to follow the voice of reason, of health, of well-being, of conscience, against the voices of irrational passions, close quote. Choosing either growth or passion increases the likelihood that we will so choose the next time. Some people consistently make growth choices and others lose this capacity. Most of us make both kinds of choices. Fromm lists some important areas of awareness. First is knowing from experience, not from being told by others, that certain actions bring good outcomes and others bad ones. Next is learning what we must do and what we must avoid to accomplish chosen goals. Third is understanding the motives, perhaps unconscious, behind particular impulses or desires. And of course, our practice gradually uncovers increasing awareness of our motives. Fromm's fourth important awareness is recognizing the limits on our possibilities. This includes knowing how much temptation we can take before giving in to it. We learn that we must avoid certain situations if we cannot withstand the harmful pull that they have on us. And finally, he said, we we must observe the consequences of our choices. This makes us able to learn from experience and mistakes. Finally, Fromm said we must act regardless of the cost. Willing demands action, whereas wishing does not. Fromm agrees with many religious traditions that our ultimate choice is between remaining greedy and continuing to suffer, or renouncing greed and ending suffering. He said you cannot expect God, some other person, or fate to force this decision. 
They, they, religion might make us aware, but leaves the choice to the individual. So from summary position, quote, there is never indeterminism. There is sometimes determinism and sometimes alternativism based on the uniquely human phenomenon, awareness. Nothing is uncaused, but not everything is determined. Close quote. Other people also influence our freedom. Fromm considered freedom to be terrifying for many people because it forces them to be responsible for managing their lives in what he called an orientation by proximity to the herd. Uh, we try to transfer control and responsibility for ourselves to a leader or a group. Viktor Frankl felt that the traditions that usually support correct behavior are falling apart. We have no instinct we can trust to guide us, and we often don't know what we wish to do. So we wind up choosing to do what other people do, which is conformism, or what other people want us to do, which is totalitarianism. That is, we solve the problem by conforming or by, or by finding someone else to take responsibility for us. Italian psychologist Roberto Ariati, who's not well known in this country but had a great deal of good things to say, he agreed that the will to be human can be a burden. Some people choose lives, such as in a cult, where they don't have to make decisions. Because they fear making mistakes, they passively comply with an authoritarian system. How comforting it can be to feel that if I just do what I'm told, I don't have to worry about what I do. Quite competent and intelligent people sometimes give away their freedom in this way. Human limitedness and the many possible choices we have make mistakes easily possible. Arietti identified Five major mistakes. First, we sometimes don't have an information for an informed choice. Second, we might make errors of judgment in trying to understand the facts. Third, we might follow wishes or impulses instead of best judgment. This, of course, is being trapped by feeling tone, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experience. Fourth, even when we think we've made reasonable choices, motives outside of awareness might be moving us. And finally, he said, we sometimes make a poor choice because of fear of others' reactions. Ariadne said that one great source of fear is oughtness. When other people's expectations are social pressures, take on a sense of oughtness, seeing what is just and good becomes difficult. While some oughts are relatively benign, many religious beliefs, dogmas, and myths become associated with distorted oughtness. 
Some of these led Christian crusaders to slaughter Muslims, Catholics to massacre Huguenots on St. Bartholomew's Day, Turks to murder Christian Armenians during the First World War, clergy to encourage, encourage war in Southeast Asia, Irish Protestants and Catholics to kill each other, Jews and Arabs to be locked in continuing struggle, and Muslim extremists to think they please their God by slaughtering people who hold to a different religion. People also so often readily adopt the behaviors of others around them that no choosing seems to occur. A sociologist, David Riesman, described two conformist types. The other directed draw direction from people around them and the tradition directed conform to the patterns of their social groups. Both of these types of conformity can lead to behaving with great cruelty and fostering social injustices. They easily breed prejudices against any who are not like us. They can certainly distort perception and greatly limit our ability to make helpful choices. Sociologist Herbert Kelman described three processes of social influence. First, we comply to get a favorable reaction from others. Second, in identifying with a group, we conform to those with whom we're associated. And third, we take in and make our own the values of others because they're appealing. Their appeal might be to our reason and good heart, but the appeal Appeal can also be to our unhelpful psychological proclivities. People seldom are willing to act directly contrary to their values if asked to do so. However, they will frequently join crowds engaging in forbidden actions. When values are not involved but only simple agreement with the judgment of others on trivial matters, a higher rate of conformity occurs. Consistently, social scientists find a positive relationship between religiousness and social acquiescence. In other words, religious people tend to conform more. That makes it all the more important to carefully evaluate anything that one's religion asks of them. William James, back to him again, described two main disorders of will, explosive will and obstructed will. Explosive will has a defective ability to inhibit responses. Impulse immediately leads without reflection to action. In Buddhist terms, we could say we go from an enticing feeling tone to greed or aversion, to an intention to act and to action without any breaks on the process. John of the Cross would say that we're responding to the invitation of first movements without any rational reflection. Obstructed will has trouble initiating activity. The mind's focusing capacity cannot attend to anything leading to action 
and tremendous effort seems needed to make any decision at all, very often depression or low self-esteem seemingly blocks one's ability to choose and act. Arietti described similar pathologies of will. He said a psychopathic will cannot say no to itself and has no capacity to delay gratification. More complex psychopaths may convince themselves that they have a mission in life that makes them more important than others. Hitlers and Neros thus justify their feeling that they deserve privileges and gratifications denied others. Obsessive-compulsive wills are restrained by tyrannical internal laws that invariably submerge wishes. Catatonic wills are in the worst shape. They're often incapable of any voluntary action because they're filled with so much fear. They attach tremendous responsibility to even the slightest manifestation of will, so the implications of willing anything immobilize them. The ability to postpone gratification closely touches the willpower issue. Time binding is a technical term for spanning the time between impulse and gratification. Many people tolerate delays that others cannot, such as prolonged career preparation, postponement of eating and sexual pleasures, or even total renunciation of some gratifications for religious or moral reasons. In normal development, the capacity to delay gratification increases with age. Delay is accomplished most successfully when we can distract ourselves from awareness of the frustration of waiting and the enticement of immediate gratification. And again, we're back to focus of attention here. The story is told of a Catholic monk who hung a sausage, which is forbidden during Lent, in his room to exercise his willpower by ignoring it during Lent, by not going. But they say he finally broke down and ate it on Good Friday. He was just baiting himself. Not smart. Now we're going to get to some really nitty-gritty stuff here. The Buddha recognized the importance of body awareness. And modern research also shows how much brain activity influences behavior. In his teaching on mindfulness, the Buddha pointed out four things to be mindful of. Body, feeling tone, or the hedonic quality of our experiences. Mind, and the objects of consciousness. In the teaching on mindfulness of the body, there's a section about our activities. The Buddha spoke of what he called clear comprehension regarding behavior. And he gave us some guidelines. He said we must recognize the motives behind an action. This, of course, is not as easy as it sounds because a lot of our motivation is not conscious to us. 
We also have conflicting motives at work at any given time. Our habits, addictions, compulsions, and cravings can work to make us deceive ourselves about motives. However, motivation is an important clue as to whether a choice is skillful or unskillful behavior. We can always ask ourselves, will this choice lead in the long run to my own and others' suffering, or is it a cause for happiness? Next, the Buddha said, we must realize whether the contemplated action is a suitable way to accomplish what we're trying to do. He recommended asking ourselves regarding speech, whether it's true and whether it's useful. We need also to know if the time, place, and other circumstances are right for any intended speech or action. The Buddha urged remaining aware of the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selfless nature of all phenomena, which helps prevent acting on motives of greed or aversion. Atheist Sam Harris, he writes a lot of good stuff, by the way, made the point that should I have had the same heredity, prenatal conditions, brain structure, upbringing, and all the other influencing factors as any given criminal, I would behave as that criminal does. This was captured in the novelist saying when he saw a condemned man being led to death, there but for the grace of God go I. How much is our freedom curtailed by such things as brain activity? Our criminal justice system acknowledges that some brain conditions can seriously affect conduct. A plea of not guilty by reason of insanity is an allowed criminal defense, although convincing jurors to accept it often proves difficult. Most people have strong beliefs that any bad behavior is ultimately a matter of free choice and thus should be punished. There has been sufficient brain mapping, however, to show that moods, sensitivity to pain, and many other states of awareness are linked to patterns of brain activity. These all start in the body, although we most often become aware of them only when they appear in the mind as a mental feeling. Physiologists and psychologists have done a very interesting study on the brain and choice. They have demonstrated that the brain shows changes leading to a choice to move a few milliseconds before we become consciously aware of choosing to move. That is, the brain knew what was going to happen before a person experienced making a choice in that direction. So the decision to act is made by the brain a third of a second before it feels like we're making it. This finding, of course, led to new heated debates among neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers about free will. One way out of this dilemma that preserves some freedom for us was stated this way. 
We don't know when consciousness begins because some of it is not fully available to us. We have many unconscious processes going on that move us, that substratum of consciousness that carries our karma and the such, which is not in full awareness. Although we're not aware of them, they are part of consciousness. Thus, something in us made the choice but before we were consciously aware of making it. Intentions obviously arise out of that part of consciousness that's not in sunlit awareness. Just as with emotions, the body knows before the mind does. And there are some experiences in deep meditation that perhaps some of you have experienced. You can observe the body making movements spurred by an intention without any feeling that an I is choosing it. In walking practice, it can feel like the body is simply walking itself without our intervention. The chain of intention and movement occurs somewhere within our being, but without our conscious feeling of choosing to move. Of course, such meditation experiences lead to a much deeper understanding of the teaching of no-self. A Unitarian Universalist minister wrote, quote, It is so fiendishly difficult to change entrenched habits and behaviors because we literally have to change our brains to do so. Rewire the synapses, create new neural modes, and establish different pathways. And our brains resist such change. Close quote. A large and growing body of research shows that mindfulness practice does actually rewire the brain in positive directions. Many of them point to increased activity in areas of the brain associated with positive emotions and decreased reactivity to pain and other unpleasantness. So our brain becomes less moved by the unpleasantness of our experiences. Where does all of this leave us? We can draw some simple conclusions. Both common sense and psychological research show that people are happier and behave better when they see themselves as free. So we can do the best we can with whatever measure of freedom we see ourselves as having. We can accept that everything that exists is determined at least in part by what has happened in the past. We are who we are because of many things. A better past gives us more freedom and more possibilities. But we can also believe that we're not wholly determined by this. We have at least some measure of freedom. We have some choice, even if it's limited. The choices we now make determine our possibilities for the future. We know that our choice to meditate makes for a better future. Religion and psychology agree that increasing awareness increases freedom. A central theme of 
most Eastern religions is that ignorance chains us to the wheel of determinism. Awareness brings the possibility of liberation from the tyranny of torturing states of mind and wayward impulses. This freedom is not an all-or-nothing thing, but grows over time with diligent practice. Being aware of John's first movement, our Buddhist feeling tone, can help keep us from getting sucked into wrong choices by our conditioning, our lack of freedom. Having this awareness is a matter of training our minds to be mindful as we move through our lives. We can also remind ourselves of our higher motives and aspirations when feeling compelled to unskillfulness. We can realize that, as Fromm said, that we don't want maximum freedom, being able easily to move in both skillful and unskillful directions. We can realize with him and the Buddha that every choice counts in bending us in one direction or another. When we've made enough choices in one direction, we lose freedom to behave in another, and we want to be bent toward what is skillful. We can apply the Buddhist practice of clear comprehension. We can work to know and understand our motives and the suitability of our behavior. We can do our practice to come to know ourselves in the way we must in order to increase our measure of freedom. We can do our practice to rewire our brains in positive directions. May we all be moved to do so. And I will take questions, but you're going to give me just a few seconds to put in my hearing aid, which I don't generally like to wear while I'm sitting, and which I was afraid might interfere with the sound system here and make um, squeals in either the hearing aid or the sound system. And if it does now, well, we'll have to, we'll have to cope in one way or another. So I will mention, too, when we, um, since this class is being recorded, it is nice to ask your question into this microphone. That's so that everybody else can hear the, the question. So if there's a question, she'll give you the mic. No questions? My goodness, I've never spoken here before with no questions. Hi, uh, thank you for the talk. I was, um, I guess I was thinking about will and choice recently because um, well, I was trying to buy some stuff, uh, specifically underwear. It's probably not important, but um, <laughs> I guess I try to buy most of the things I get, like secondhand, Goodwill, Savers, whatever, um, but you don't really do that with underwear, you know. Um, but, and I think this was kind of like that catatonic will thing that it's like trying to make a good choice seemed impossible. Like every clothing company was like killing people in sweatshops and every shipment of underwear was 
you know, burning up fossil fuels and it was really difficult. Um, and it felt like a really strong personal drama at the same time. Um, because, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to be a good person and like make the best choice, but it was seemingly impossible. So do you have, I guess, suggestions for <laughs> what? <laughs> not, not any brands or anything, but <laughs> specifically how to make, how to try to make choices when seemingly all the options are, are bad to some degree. And the more we know about a lot of things, like you said, like sweatshops and, and, and the such, um, the more complicated it can get. I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but I think that we just, knowing that we're not going to do it perfectly, which we have to accept, we do the best we can with what information we have, and we get what information we can, but again, we can't just accumulate information without tending to the other things in our lives either. So because we're human beings, it's never going to be perfect. That's about the best I, I, I can think of to say to that dilemma. But it is a problem. Hi. Is this working? Oh, hello. Okay. Um, do you have suggestions for determining if a passion is healthy or not? If following your passion is going to be good or not? I think I think the issue is how we're defining that word passion. The the way the authors that I was quoting defined it as that sort of irrational impulses and the such that arise up in us. Um yes, one can have a, a passion for the good, a passion for but they were in fact they often put the word irrational passion in front of it, which I did some of the time. Um so they're defining it as the behavior basically that's motivated by how good it feels or how awful it feels. That's what they were meaning by it. Could, could there be things, though, that feel good but maybe seem unhealthful but in the end might be healthful? Well, that's where the rational rationality that they were talking about comes in because we don't go by the immediate feel of it, but we go by what in the long run is going to work for the good and be good. And, hey, sometimes treatment by a doctor feels pretty awful, but in the long run it's going to be good, and we're not moved by the awfulness of the feeling. Sometimes what feels really good in this moment, like that extra serving at dinner when we know we're already overweight, we know it feels good in the moment, but we're not, we try not to be moved by that because in the long run, it's not going to be good. So that's, that's the difference, whether we're moved by the immediate pleasantness or unpleasantness or whether we make reasonable choices based on what we want to accomplish. Oh, all the way back. A back row baby. I'm Priscilla, and that's quite a comprehensive intellectual history of those who have wrestled with these questions. I'm, as you are, 
I have a foot in both camps, Christian and Buddhist. I'm, I would be interested in how your own meditation practice has uh, led you to experience will and freedom and powerlessness. So arising out of your meditation practice, where do you come out with these issues then? Um, well, I, I, can, I can honestly say I, I have much more freedom than when I started in many ways. But it's certainly the kind of self-knowledge that the practice brings really helps you get in touch with the things that are moving you that you weren't aware were moving you before. And I've become very, very much more aware of the things that were completely, the, the kind of thing that you say, oh, why did I do that? Or where did that come from when we've said something that we later wish we hadn't? There's much less of that because there's more in touchness with the various things that might be moving me and the understanding how feeling tone conditions certain reactions you can watch it happen sometimes and realize okay I don't need to act on this and there are places along the way where you can stop it if something says not a good idea and so it sort of slows down what I said in the the kind of will that just goes from the the pleasantness or unpleasantness to action without it puts brakes on the process all the way through and you can realize to be able to stop it at any point. I've definitely seen that happening increasingly with my practice. So so I, I it's it's and I hope it's I hope it's rewiring my brain as, as the researchers have shown it is for many people. Hi. Um, you were speaking about also or reading about conformity. And um, in groups of people, um, is it more beneficial like, say you have a group of friends that can be negative at times, um, and you can also fall into that. Is it more important to find ways of not conforming or finding another crowd of people to be around? Um, <laughs> I, I think... If, if one knows oneself and realizes that if I'm with certain people, I'm going to be sucked into going along with, say, their racist sentiments or their whatever. If, if I know that I can't withstand the pull with certain people, then they would be people that it's best to avoid. On the other hand, what can be, if, if one is so chooses, what can be very helpful when you're in that kind of a group is to comment about it and, and say, I, I can't accept what you said because I don't think it's a, a helpful position. But one has to know oneself. That's that whole business of knowing what you need to avoid because sometimes there are things we need to avoid or, or what situation you can manage well. Um, back when my therapy, I, I did psychotherapy for a while as a clinical psychologist, and I, one story I absolutely love, a, a judge that didn't know 
what she was doing, told um, a DUI man who, who was probably clearly an alcoholic that, well, here's your choice, 30 days or 12 sessions of psychotherapy. Well, I mean, what are you going to choose? She should have sent him to AA, of course. But So I wound up with him because I was a trainee at that time, and the, the big wigs give the trainees the things that they know are dead-end streets. Um, so the first thing this man said when he walked in was, well, I just want you to know I don't have a drinking problem. The problem is that I have to walk past a tavern on my way home. <laughs> Well, duh, don't walk by the tavern, you know, but um, it, it, it's, uh, I, I like that story because it illustrates so easily the, the point of sometimes you just have to avoid certain things, you know. Hi, a question about um, first movement or stirrings, uh, body awareness that can be moving in a positive direction. Metta is a, is a positive feeling of the heart. And is it possible that we can cultivate through mindfulness um, greater access to these positive inclinations that may even be beneath the, the level of typical day-to-day consciousness? Thoughts about that? Oh, definitely. And, and they say the two wings of our practice are wisdom and compassion. And I certainly think um, this practice will make us more compassionate. It just does. Um, when we were talking about the pull from the, pleasant, the first movements that John of the Cross saw as inclinations to be moved by the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our, of our experience, which is the Buddhist feeling tone, those were talking about the reactions to things that are going to get us in trouble. Um, the less we're moved by the pleasantness or unpleasantness of our experiences, the freer we are to be moved by the demands of a situation rather than something inside of us and to be called to compassionate action when it's called for to doing this if that seems to be called for or that. And this is part of the Buddhist clear comprehension too, to know what motives are moving us. Am I being moved by the pull to pleasantness or unpleasant? Or, or am I being moved by something that's very positive? And we certainly, hopefully if our practice is doing its job, we are moving in that direction because we're less enslaved to the pleasantness and unpleasantness of our experiences. I have a, oh, oh, over there. there? Is this me? Oh, you have one. Okay. okay. <laughs> I thought it was going over that way. Um, in regards to conformity, you said that we give away some of our free will when we conform to a certain, uh, certain social group. Now, I've met a lot of peer groups in my life who have I've conformed to, and in the long run, they've given me a good set of morals, a new set of values to hold on to. So my question is, is there a trade-off or what's the comparison of giving away our free will versus finding a new set of values within a peer group? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I missed the first part of your question. The last was in a peer group. Is there a... You said when we conform to a certain peer group or a social group, we give away some of our free will. So oh, is there a trade-off necessarily. That? That they were talking about people who are... There's a pull to conformity, but we don't have to be pulled. 
Is that, am I still not doing what you asked? No, that's clear. <laughs> I have a question about um, family. Um, you know, we were talking about leaving friends, but you can't, it's difficult to leave a family. <laughs> and um, at times I feel like, um, a complete oddball, like, what am I doing in this family, you know? And, you know, and um, it's really, really the, the, the major challenge of my life, particularly as we're dealing with an aging parent um, and, and everybody getting involved. It's, it's, um, it's teaching me a lot, and I feel many times like... I'm, you know, like it's 40 years ago or 50 years ago even, dealing with these characters in my family novel. Um, it's more of a statement, but I, I don't know if you could comment on that. Well, I, too, have an interesting family. Um, my, my children are actually split down the middle. Um, some of them got their values and politics from my ex-husband, and some of them got them from me, and they're quite different, believe me. <laughs> um, when, when, we, when we gather for, for family occasions like holidays and the such, we've, we've kind of come to an agreement that there are certain things we just won't talk about at that gathering because it's just going to make people unhappy if we do. So that's one solution. There's just certain things that we don't approach. I have a brother who <clears throat> delights in thinking about how many people are going to go to hell because they use contraceptives and single-handedly defeated the gay rights ordinance in his community and all sorts of lovely little achievements like that to his credit. Um, I finally got him. I said, please don't send me emails about any of your projects, and I won't send you any about mine. So I think, really, avoidance of certain issues is the best way to go. <laughs> I've, I've learned through hard effort you aren't likely to affect change, and, and it just causes dissension. This is just an observation. It, it, it seems like we need to have some kind of a core set of values to anchor us, increased awareness of our own motivations and that kind of thing, and then uh, call it a 90-second pause or something to kind of slow down before we act, you know, so we don't act impulsively. But it seems like, in my own experiences, as you get older and you get practiced in this, sometimes I'm finding the spontaneous things I do are really on sync. Mm -hmm. After a while, you just have a conscious sense of this needs to be done. And it seems like you do that thing much more quickly as you get older. I don't know. Or, and, and I think just as you integrate, maybe, you know. Mm -hmm. So because sometimes I'm realizing I need to start reacting sometimes on my, rea my gut reactions because they're right on, you know. And, uh, and I don't know how you decide when they hurt, when it's, you know. But maybe it's just awareness. Well, to the extent that we're free of being moved by pleasantness and unpleasantness, we can trust our impulses. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of this lovely woman who was called Peace Pilgrim, who, uh, when she was 50 years old, um, started walking back and forth across the country just wearing a tunic that said Peace Pilgrim. 
and and the Empress trying to get people to talk to her about peace, and she walked north in the in the summer and across the south in the winter. And um, I love one of the stories that people. She never wrote anything herself, but her followers. She drew followers. They they wrote story, and I love one where she said when she was walking one day, she came across a man beating a little girl. And she said, my mind said, this shouldn't be happening. And I put myself in between them, and he shoved me out of the way. So I put myself between them again, and he shoved me out of the way. A third time I did. He threw down the stick and walked away. And she said, afterwards I realized if I had been angry, if I was coming from the wrong thing and come charging at him and saying, you brute, you mean thing, you you probably would have had both a beaten old lady and a beaten little girl. But because she came at him just with this shouldn't be happening, not any negativity toward him, she did just exactly what made it end. So I love that story. Um, By the way, if you're interested in Peace Pilgrim, if you Google Friends of Peace Pilgrim, there's an organization, Friends of Peace Pilgrim, you, they'll just like Buddhists, they'll send you stuff free, but it's friendly about. But it's friendly to send donations if you can help, so they can keep doing it. You know. Anything? Else? I think we need the microphone. So wherever it is, it should be on its way to you. While the microphone is going to him. I will mention something else that you could Google. If you have any interest in my Buddhist Christian retreats, um, Google Resources for Ecumenical Spirituality, or you can email me at R-E-S, as in Sam, E-C-U-M, Resicum, first three letters of resources, first four of ecumenical, R-E-S-E-C-U-M, at msn.com. And I can put you on a list to notify you when these things are going to be happening. Okay. Um, if uh, someone has gone through a real bad trauma, say, you know, I, I'm many. If somebody has gone through a real bad trauma, you know, he's he's experienced a real bad trauma years ago in his past um, is it normal and natural to feel uh, depression and despair or can he or she make a choice between feeling depressed and despair and and uh, what would this have to do with resiliency the last part was what does it what does it have to do with resiliency resiliency oh, with resilience well depression and fear are two of the responses that the buddha put under aversion and they come out of unpleasantness of experience um we're conditioned to have the unpleasantness suck us into some form of aversion. But with practice, we get freer and freer of that. And uh, not that there aren't some big things that are probably, really big things that are probably going to still hit us, but more and more we carve out freedom to be able simply to say, okay, it's unpleasant. It's 
just unpleasant without the whatever form of aversion would follow. But I mean, that's perfect freedom to be completely unmoved. And that doesn't come for a long time, folks. You know, we, we got a little time to wait for that. So we are conditioned to have those responses to unpleasantness. Um, but they should lessen over time with practice. What's the... What? What is the the practice that does that? For some reason, I'm having trouble picking what, you up. What is the practice that... Our mindfulness you? practice. Mindfulness, okay. Um, which, which, of course, they teach here and... I teach it's it's the Buddhist mindfulness practice. Hmm? Oh, um, I've just been told that we. Oh yeah, we're ten minutes over the time they suggested that I should stop. So, I've just been told let's leave it here. So I guess that's what we have to do. Thank you all for coming. I always enjoy coming here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.